waiting is poison to an idea. I like to think of ideas as fragile little beings. If we don't tend to them, they're not going to have a life. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it. Hello and welcome everybody to our Fishbowl Live. I am Tesha Phillips. Uh, I'm a technical writer and comedy producer based in Seattle, Washington. And I am here today with Becky Blades, writer, speaker, artist, entrepreneur, and as of today, November 1st, author of Start More Than You Can Finish, which again, just launched today. We're very excited. Becky, welcome and congratulations. Thank you. So glad to be here. Yes. Um, so this this book, Start More Than You Can Finish, can you tell the listeners here just a little bit about what inspired the creation of this book and what specifically entrepreneurs can expect to take away? Yes, this book was inspired by my journey after I sold my first company. I started doing all kinds of the creative things that I wanted to do, which is the reason I sold the company. And I knew that I wanted to hang out with what I call startists, people who begin things, people who act on their ideas. So that's writers, authors, entrepreneurs, inventors, community leaders, because people who are acting on their ideas are the most exciting people. So as I was kind of going into my next stage of life, I, I realized that I'm really good at starting new things. I don't finish everything I start. And the most successful people, these other startists, feel the same way. They are very good at facing the blank page or facing the blank stage or facing the blank business plan. And that was kind of a superpower. But the world at large had a different feeling about some of these people. They considered them flighty if we, if we don't think we start. If we have a lot of plates spinning at the same time, that was maybe a source of shame. So I set out to explore that topic. I, I talked to about a thousand startists. And I studied neuroscience for three or four years about the process of creativity and initiating new ideas and how that works in our brain. So what I came out with was a more light-hearted book than you'd think about. The, the neuroscience is out there. It's been done. Creativity is good for us. It is the best of who we are. It fires up the great parts of the brain, it releases endorphins and dopamine and all that. Creativity is good. We are all creative. But the ability to start, act on our ideas, once we have them, that initiative is a different kind of skill. And it can be practiced. It can be learned. It can be taught and shared. So that's what I set out to do in this book because nothing gives me more joy than someone coming up to me and saying, oh, that thing we talked about, I started it, I finished it. And nothing makes me sadder than somebody saying, yeah, I have a book in me. I don't, you know, I don't think I'll ever really write it though. (laughs) Right. So Becky, I, I loved that you mentioned your 
the, the company that you sold. I'm particularly interested. Uh, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. That was a huge start. It was a huge undertaking. In the book, you talk a lot about different types of starts, the ones in the minute where you write the idea down and then these sort of large endeavors. So when you started your company, Blades & Associates, in 1990, can you tell us a little bit about what allowed that start to happen besides, of, of course, your innate strong starting muscles? What around you enabled that to feel possible and to be so successful? Thanks. Yeah, that was beautiful. A big, a big stretch, but at the time, it was a little stretch. So what I realized as I, as I kind of wrote about it and looked back is that I started the simplest kind of company I could. I had been in creative agencies. I, I'd worked in advertising and I'd worked in journalism. And I had kind of decided that I wanted to start my own company. But about, about the time I was really taking that seriously, it just looked so daunting what I would have to do. I didn't want to freelance. I knew I didn't want to just, I didn't want to lick my own stamps. So a company came at me with a recruiting offer. They had a big campaign and they needed somebody to lead it about two years. And we, we kind of talked through in that very first interview that I, at some point, wanted to start a business. And they said, you know, we won't stand in your way. You give us a couple of years. And uh, they didn't say they'd help, but they said they wouldn't stand in my way. Well, <laughs> I pretty much locked that in. So so the point of that is, is kind of when you start, you know, making that decision was important. And also I laid it out there. But the big thing now looking back is that I know that I would never have started that company if I knew how big it would grow. That would have terrified me. Because right. It was, you know, six figures of monthly payroll, but. I started small. And so I, I had enough to start, but I didn't know what the finish was. And so I wasn't afraid of it. So in that organization that you started and ran for many years, can you talk a little bit about how you fostered that sense of creativity and it, kind of the marriage of creativity and initiative to start things in your employees, in your workplace, which I should mention is a creative agency. So that kind of, you know, the clients need deliverables. <laughs> we can't start things and put them on the shelf. But the the starting and the creativity, can you talk about how you helped grow that in your employees? Yeah, I mean, I think the people in creative agencies have the best starting muscles. They don't start that way. But once you have to face the blank page, the blank campaign enough times, it becomes your job, and that is that's the best way to build that muscle. But some people aren't successful because they either lean too much on teams or because the culture maybe doesn't welcome the ideas. Maybe there's too rigid at processes. So, so I just really work because I'm also a visual artist. I think I instinctively worked to instill a process of collaboration, open brainstorming, honoring every idea. And honoring it means letting it live a little instead of batting things down in the brainstorming. You know, if the budget could could afford it, and even if it couldn't, let's let an idea take a breath at least, live a life. Don't just 
put it on a piece of paper and eliminate it from there. So um, I think that process just subconsciously to me, um, more to say I wasn't conscious that I was putting that out there, but I think it was for a public relations firm, a very creative one. Right, right. I really like what you said earlier about the fact that you were able to be transparent when you before you started your agency and say, hey, these are my my plans. I'm starting this uh, and be be transparent with the people who didn't agree to help you. But, you know, you were able to, to be honest in that way. So something that I thought about a lot when reading this book and that I came across is when I'm excited about something, it, either a writing project or a comedy show I, I want to put on, I do take a lot of steps that maybe on paper feel like starting, but I know that they're not. So maybe that would look like I do a lot of research. I tell people how excited I am about my new idea, but often things, they don't really go past that. And I'm curious, have I started? Is that starting? How will I know when I've taken the step that most folks are afraid to, that kills a lot of the the great ideas that don't get explored as much as they need to? Such a good question. That's what I studied for five years because I had things that I thought I had started because I'd researched them when all I was doing was talking myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And talking about them. Also, you can, you can just use up your passion by talking about them and then actually taking the action you need feels not nearly as fun. That's why I came up with a four-step starting process, and I didn't come up with anything. I It was delivered to me in neuroscience. It's the process that human beings use when we make any kind of change or commitment, and it's these four steps. We imagine something, a future state, a creation. Second, we we think about that. We ponder it. We make it real in our lives. How are we going to do that? What will I feel once this is done? The third step is making a decision to do it. And then the fourth step is taking action. Now in, in creativity, these steps all happen so quickly and good and professional startists do them almost simultaneously. But the trick is this, action has to happen and we can't lie to ourselves about what action is. So um, the first step to get to be a better starter, the first step is to imagine bigger and imagine in a way that excites you. The second step, thinking about something, my suggestion in the book is the most successful people don't think very much. They have... (laughs) That's great guidance. That's that's reassuring to hear. (laughs) So think less because the human brain is designed to stay safe. The human brain is designed to talk us out of things that might be risky. And when we're being creative, we need courage. So the less we say to ourselves, the better. I, I give the example of think like a five-year-old who's got a mom who will do anything. <laughs> um, so right. don't very much and make the decision. And That's a whole big topic, but most of us don't decide not to start our ideas. We just decide not to decide. So, but we have to take that step. That was the key reason why I started a company and then could wait two years before launching it because I had decided. 
I decided I was going to start a business. So the timing could be fluid. Then the fourth step is action. And we all know what that is. We can't kid ourselves. Action is not done from a Barco lounger. It doesn't look like talking about your idea over beers. Action is putting some skin in the game, setting the meeting, opening the file, writing the first sentence, putting down the first brush stroke. I mean, I think that is one of the key benefits of the book is I do slap myself around and, <laughs> and other people's notions of what beginning really is. And every project has a different kind of a, a start. So, you know, we have to talk in hypotheticals a little bit. Right, right. And I, I believe you, you mentioned in the book this idea of you can't kid yourself. You know when you've started and when you haven't. And I know that when I want to take three friends out and wax eloquent about my, my next big idea, I have not started. I have, I may be thinking, but that decision piece is, is really the crux of it. I know for me, the things that have, have taken off and gotten going and yielded some of the most exciting results often have included a collaborator maybe who heard me in those early stages and said, maybe made the decision for me because I, in saying it, I had made it real and they had said, yes, Howard, that's it. That's how we're doing this. Can you talk a little bit about the role of collaborators or your environment or having other people around you with those strong muscles and how that, those strong starting muscles and how that can benefit you? Yeah. And that's so, that's so interesting. I really like to work alone so I, and I wouldn't have put much in this book about collaboration, but I decided to start some things that I didn't know how to. And one was a song. So I'm a word person. I do not know anything about music, but I had a friend who was a songwriter and I learned the, that almost all songs are written in collaboration. Maybe not all, but, but that it's a very common, for example, in Nashville for two writers to get together and do do rights. And so I had some word ideas and I set up a songwriting session with this friend. And of course, the collaboration was absolutely essential. I can't write music. I can't play an instrument. And that one, that collaboration was so easy for me because I knew what I was bringing and I knew what I absolutely couldn't bring. I mean, collaborations are probably challenging. I mean, in the workplace, for example, uh, if you have to collaborate with somebody with the same skills and there's, there's a sense of, um, there might be a sense of competition or mixed interests or ambitions. I think those might be challenging, but if we can lean into our strengths and be real clear about why the collaboration exists. I bring this to the table. I bring this and sharing judgment on things is, is always the best part of a collaboration is somebody to save us from ourselves. Yeah. If you can't, so many people have ideas that they don't even really get serious about starting because they know they don't have the skills to do it. Right. And always reach out, especially in today's world, go on Twitter. (laughs) Does anybody know how to macrame? Because I have a project that requires some of that. I think that is one of the things I really hope will come from this book is that people will not be afraid to say, you know, I have this wacky idea. Anybody want to 
come on in this pool with me. Right. And and in the book, you have great examples of folks who, who have done just that, who have let the idea and decision piece come pretty quickly and then absolutely know immediately that they need others to take action. I'm thinking specifically of Laura Schmidt and Notes to Self Socks. Can you talk a little bit about that example and how Laura Laura's story ties into the principles that you explored in the book? Oh, yeah. That's just, that's one of the first stories, and it's about how ideas are born, inspiration, because Laura is a big affirmation follower, and she's always her whole life studied affirmations, and the story of her sock idea was that she was driving down the highway on a family trip, look at her stocking feet, and said, hmm, what if I put (laughs) affirmations on socks? Because the book she was reading about affirmations said that we are most prone to suggestion in the morning and at night, both times where we're putting on and taking off our socks. She said out loud to her husband, I think I'm going to put affirmations on socks. (laughs) She was a salesperson for a national company. She knew nothing about the garment industry or how to make socks. So she very slowly as a side hustle started collaborating with people who could make the get socks made and locally the way she wanted them. And then her whole business is a collaboration with, you know, with retailers. And so she's just a great story of inspiration. Right. So Becky, the title of this, of this fishbowl is start more and create better. And that got me thinking, what do, do you and your book say about how the quantity, the, the more we can flex those starting muscles, give our ideas a life, how that does contribute to not just the quantity, but the quality of the things that we'll start and create next? Great question. Yes. Well, it's kind of like going to the batting cage. The practice kind of just gives you a muscle memory and a comfort level. And so any idea. I want to write a limerick about my sister. You know, if we get comfortable with starting anything, what it does to our brains and our courage is let us know that the stakes, if this doesn't work, I can just start something else. Or if this this way, I can turn it, I can pivot it, I can enlarge it. Anything can come. The creative process can make anything happen out of this when we feel that, when we really know it. And people who've been in organizations where they've seen ideas really grow and form truly, they know this, that they are allowed to dream bigger. If we, you know, think again of that, those four steps as as a circle, not steps. If you really know that the creative process will take the idea where it's meant to go, you can just think more I don't want to say outside of the box, but non-linearly. You can, you can think uh, grand and you can think small. And I think that we need permission to think smaller. Planning a business uh, with the goal that you're going to go public in six years is, a, <laughs> is not a fun way to plan a business because all you're, you know, you're with, with a goal that big and kind of general the little creativity process along the way is much too stressful. But if, if we can have small ideas and when we get into them, and this is the key, 
that the start, that first action step is a swag bag of gifts. If we can take that first action step and get the things that step has confidence, momentum, resources that come our way, the ideas get bigger and bigger along the creative process. So we also learn the more we start to cross-pollinate types of creativity, visual and auditory and just kind of spatial things, the, the more things we begin, the more our imagination has to draw from. Right, right. And as you say that, it has me thinking about, you know, you, you know your strengths, you know the different types of creativity that that you or one kind of brings to the table. What would you say to someone who has an idea about something way outside their knowledge domain, their comfort zone, who really wants to start but is apprehensive about becoming a beginner again or the work that they've already done in another area to now contribute to a new area, what would you say to someone in that situation? That's a good question. So I think, I don't know if you, if this is what you mean, but starting in a new field or changing job kind of that we are never starting from scratch. I mean, all, if we knew the neuroscience, every interaction, every time we act on our ideas and demand that our brains kind of solve a problem, it prepares us for the next step. So there's a story in the book about a a man who is 47 years old. And when he learned that he could paint, draw masterfully. So the the story is I walked into this gallery and and I'm a visual artist and he's painting on a huge canvas this incredible painting of a woman, her face like seven feet square and just was just so, what do I want to say? Just breathtaking in its scale, in his tank. And I started chatting with him and he said, yeah, I just learned to do this a couple of years ago. And I said, what, what do you mean? And and he, he knew how incredible this was. (laughs) He said, he said, I had never picked up a pencil. He was a photographer and he took photographs of female athletes. He said, you know, my daughter had her sketch pad at home. I picked up, I picked up a pencil and I started sketching one of the photos I'd taken. And it was a perfect likeness. And he passed it to his wife and he said, look, he said, you should try to draw because he says it's really easy. Um <laughs> You know, that's a point for a different thing in the book. That's a point that what skills might be hiding within you. But for him, I don't know. Maybe we don't know if he had picked up a pencil when he was 20 before he had trained his eye to look at composition through the camera. We don't know if, uh, you know, he was a project manager. That was his job. We don't know if he would have been able to learn as quickly how to, you know, go through the process of layering. We don't know if he had been less mature, if he would have been as patient with sketching out proportions and, and line. He stepped into <laughs> a whole new life at 47 and just having the courage to do it. So, so there's a big I don't know out there. And I'm just really saying if somebody's scared, if you, if you are in a job or a 
you know, want to start a, a new hobby or relationship, uh, you are not starting from scratch. We bring everything with us and it's all good stuff. I love that. That's great. The, um, his decision at 47 to, to give it a try. And it wasn't, didn't seem like a heavy decision. It seemed like he picked up a pen and he did it. How would you, can you talk a little bit about some of the, the counter messages we get to the ideas that you talk about in the book? So something that, that I thought about throughout and during this conversation is I feel a lot of shame and guilt for having multiple irons in the fire. If I start something, I, I don't think of it as I'm not going to start it, but I, I think of it as maybe on the back burner or maybe I'll get to it or something like that. And I feel a great deal of guilt for the amount of those things that I haven't seen through. And now I'm, I'm thinking, are those things that I haven't seen through or that I haven't yet started? <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about how your book disagrees with some of the ideas that the finished product is what we're going for? And, and if you miss that mark, then, then you've missed the point. Yeah. Well, finished by whose standards, right? right? We know, you know, I mean, we know in the workplace what deliverables are due on what date, but most things, the finish is not what we design it to be. It never is, even especially in business. Once a plan, you know, is printed, once action begins, a plan changes. We need to let ourselves off the hook about what finished even is. Big points about finishing that even changed my mind when you think about and having unfinished business. So my, my book really started with an audit of my unfinished business because I was shaming myself about it. And I found out in looking through computer files and drawing files that every one of the things I started served a complete purpose. It got me to a next stage. It got me, uh, the drawings were better than I thought they were at the time. What I learned about other startups, especially scientists and inventors, I want to say, and and uh, authors, is that a lot of them put, we set aside work intentionally or unintentionally to let our brains work on it. We can do it for years. Mm. We, we work on things over a lifetime. I think Mark Twain had seven books going at a time. So if if you if we look in, at our unfinished things in terms of it's unfinished or it's a failure, that doesn't do anybody any good. There's a, right. a writer that talks about slow motion multitasking that Einstein worked on these huge things, these huge theories that he did. He worked on all of them over a lifetime. And in the theory of relativity wasn't even finished. He was working on it on his deathbed. It, it will have no finish. People who started, who designed the cathedrals in Europe knew those masterpieces would not be finished in their lifetimes. Could enjoy was the start. And the uh, as creators that was enough for them. Right, right. A, a chapter I love in the book, maybe selfishly, <laughs> because it invo- is involved with uh, the, a musical improv company that I, that I produce for and work with quite a bit. And you talk about the, this musical improv show that they do every single night for 30 nights, where they, it's not a, a case study in long-term 
starting more than you can finish because we know the start and we know the finish. They've got an hour to put on a show. But what they do every single night, which consistently amazed me as someone who saw it over and over and over again, is they had to have those muscles flex, those muscles use those muscles because they had to start something that other people were going to have to pick up and run with every single night. And that was kind of the nature of their their craft. I guess I'm curious, do you see that a lot where folks have, I loved your conversation about cross-pollination between, between skills. And have you seen any more that are particularly interesting to you where someone is particularly skilled in or the starting muscles have grown as a result of something they've done, and then they see it pan out in other places in their life? Um, yes. A lot of people who have a lot of interests, if you ask them all the things that they create, we, we'd all be amazed. You know, we, some people think I'm unusual because I, I write and I make art and I started businesses. But I think if you talk to any um, entrepreneur or creative, a person in a creative agency, they have a lot of things that they create and, and start and that last over long periods of time. Cam Awesome, who um, is featured in the book, he actually changed his name to Cam F. Awesome. He's kind of the most decorated Olympic boxer. And he was a comedian. And those skills took him to being a public speaker, a comedic public speaker. And he's also an MC. He's vegan. So he's an MC for vegan conferences. But what he says is all those things are performing. To him, it's, you know, that's one skill set, but the one informs the other. Um, But, you know, back to improv, I want to say that is, that is just such a pure place to study the creative process and to get, to get courage. I, you know, I was gobsmacked by those shows. Somebody (laughs) just imagine if I get, if I get scared about doing a, a speech or starting a new topic, I think about those people who they go onto the stage, they get a title from the audience, and then just one of them throws out a line and then everybody kind of starts their own character. And I love what how one performer described it. She just said, we, the point is to do something fast. Then it's all about what we do with what we did. Mm-hmm. Creative process. The start could be, uh, like so many writers will tell you about books, the first line often gets eliminated. So go ahead and write that first line of the great American novel. If it's not good enough, it may be the last line you write that becomes that first line. Yes. Yes. I I really love the quote in the book uh, from one of the performers. If I wait to talk in a scene until I have something really good to say, I will not be in that scene. (laughs) Right. You know, waiting is poison to an idea. (laughs) I like to think of ideas as, you know, like little, you know, fragile little beings. Um, If we don't tend to them, they're not going to have a life. And, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of philosophies about what what is an idea. Some people want to think of them almost as a, as an entity 
of its own that will, it will visit you. And if you don't take care of it, it'll fly to somebody else. So some of us have had those experiences where you see something as made on TV and you're like, wait, I thought of that. Right. <laughs> I did make a million dollars. Right. Right. This message says, I am a manager of employees. What should I do when I, an employee of mine has an idea that I don't agree with? How can I foster that sense of creativity without getting folks off message? Good question. I think you got to take a leap of faith. If you're trying to build a culture of creativity, I think we need to show, to look for opportunities to show our people that we will invest in their ideas. If it gets off message, we need to be clear about what message is. But if Mm. we help invest, I mean, you know, every employee should know what the goal of the project is or the goal of, you know, and the mission of the company. But if an employee has an idea that's just a little, maybe it's benign and you're, and you're worried that it will take resources away. Well, I suggest we all have some resources on the side for our own kind of R&D. Consider it HR or something else, because what we need our employees to be able to discern is what is a good idea and what isn't. And they can only do that by taking action because our brain, the ideas in our head don't live the same life they will if they're out in the world. And the person who births the idea is usually going to be the first person to see that it's not viable. Right. I have to say as an employee in, in relatively early career, I know I can feel when I am getting the treatment of let's let the idea live outside of me. I think about kind of my experience with different employers or managers that when I know that they'll let me get to that conclusion myself, I can feel myself be more creative. My brain works in that way. I'm not afraid to to say things out loud because I know that I'm going to get great feedback from my team. But I've also been in experiences where I deliver a shell of an idea or a, or a shell of a something and when it is dismissed or when the potential obstacles are immediately introduced to me, I either consciously or subconsciously feel, okay, th- that is the reward for, you know, going for it. And I remember that. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to have an idea even and hold it in our head for a while. It's harder to say it to somebody else. It's super hard to say it in a to our boss or setting. So that's when the principles of improvisation, you may have heard yes and. I think especially creative companies should have a yes and mentality. Mm. Yes, we can try that. Yes, we can explore that. And if we can, you know, if we can put it over in, if we can maybe try it on this other client, that would save us money. You know, you can make rules about deciding on ideas. And that is the suggestion about how to decide which ideas to start and which not. So your company might have, or you as a leader might decide that your decision tree is if uh, someone has an idea and it's not going to take, and if they can explore it in two hours. Right. And if it could possibly be used on something else, 
And if it, you know, whatever the criteria are, ultimately everything is, you know, profit and loss. I would say if an hour is a dollar, we're going to spend $5 on every idea and take it. Right. And that makes me think of someone who's been my boss in the past is quoted in the book talking about the principles of improv saying, you know, there's no incorrect idea, but some moves are better than others. And it kind of reminds me of what we were talking earlier about kind of the quality of your starts will improve because as you start more and get better, you are maybe more clearly able to see how other folks could latch onto an idea or, or what you need to really get a project going. And I think that is really important because it kind of combats what I think about a lot in improv or with the idea unexplained of start more than you can finish, which is maybe can seem a little flighty or like, you know, we're, we're all in this together. Every idea is a good idea, which, which we know is not true, but yeah, <laughs> every idea out of you is better than idea, an idea that you keep to yourself. Yeah. And, but if we get good at putting ideas out there, one, we will see who will come to our right. aid and who better. Two, we will also learn with one another how to gently give feedback to help them curate their own ideas. So all of those skills are so important. But what, what we, where we are in a society is that we just don't know how to support each other with our ideas until they get to a certain viability. And that's something I'd really like for this book to shift is we should all be starting more of the ideas of our imaginings. It is the best who we are, whether it's in the workplace or out of the workplace or in our families. So it is our humanness at its best, good for our psyches. It's good for our souls. It's good for our relationships. So we need to learn all the skills around helping people start more. And that's why the title of the book is kind of tongue in cheek. It's (laughs) because if your parents ever said, you know, don't get the Legos out, it's almost dinner time, or don't bite off more than you can chew. They were not helping you finish, right? They making you start less, right? To think too hard and too long before acting on our ideas is and it's taking its toll on uh, what I call startistry in America. Our our startup numbers are uh, well, they're they're good in business mainly because of COVID, because so many so many things got shut down that now things have to start up again. Right. I think the way we are teaching kids um, what you know how to spend their childhoods and how to spend their um, their early uh, career years not careers, even education, um, to, to go down this corridor of doing things that'll get you a scholarship instead of, uh, starting a business when you're 14, um, starting a lawn mowing business, starting a lemonade stand. We are, um, we are trying to make decisions for our kids that, lead them to conform instead of act on their own ideas. Right, right. And I, I love the the book as the, the antidote for that. So we've talked a lot kind of 
big ethereal ideas um, in, in that in that type of way. So I'm curious. The book came out today. Um, folks can order it anywhere anywhere you get your books. Leave an Amazon review, all that good stuff. What right. is your what is your dream outcome for the book in terms of what can you see being started or what, what have you already heard from beta readers, friends you consulted in the process that would really make you go, wow, we're, we're moving toward more of the, the strong start world that, that we should be in. Yeah. Well, you know, I had to have several sets of eyes on the book uh, and, you know, throughout the editing process, you, you show it to people and I've been amazed. Of course, I, I know that from talking to people, uh, I encourage people to start their ideas. Somebody tells me an idea. I don't say, um, oh, too bad you can't do that. I always say you should start that and I will help you. Let's figure out how. <clears throat> but I was amazed already. Four books have been started and finished by people who. Wow. Book. <clears throat> One is an artist featured in the book she there was an, a conversation on facebook about politics and just from a comment that somebody wrote um well this this artist had done a personal action plan for herself that had to do with uh you know making the world a better place and not uh and being able to sleep at night so she made herself a little action plan she said i feel so much better well so after that conversation on Facebook, she offered her personal action plan to a couple people. She got a whole bunch of phone calls and texts. And she says, I guess I have to write a book about this because I can't talk to everybody who wants this action plan. So one of the books was, um, I think, I think it's called change the world by Tuesday. Um, and it's gonna, she's going to try to get it out by the election. So that she was a startist. She's already a startist, but just the conversation about, uh, you know, about you can start, you can also finish very imperfectly. Your finish might be what somebody else, no, it's not going to get a mainstream publisher. There's not time. Um, <clears throat> you know, maybe your piece of art isn't going to be in the Getty Museum. Uh, it's your first one. Right. But, but so that conversation is what I want. I do want uh, I, I loved one comment. I got a text from a guy who said, uh, my girlfriend just got reading your, got done reading your book and she's out buying power tools. What? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to make people buy power tools. I want to make people start their books. And, you know, today is, since this is live, Today is the first day of National Novel Writing Month. It's called Nano oh. That was very instrumental in my writing career. I wrote a really bad novel about <laughs> 15 years ago. But it's uh, you write a, a full novel in 30 days. It was initiated by a book called No Plot, No Problem. And basically, it's the same concept. It's like, don't overthink it. The rules of it are... Um, you don't research because you don't have time and you don't back read. So mm. they're freeing rules. And so I want to challenge everybody listening today to start your novel. If you wanted, if that's something you wanted to do, start your novel today, National Novel Writing Month. 
um, go online anywhere, just hashtag NaNoWriMo, you will find the most creative pep talk out there in the world than you've, that you've ever heard. With a built-in community, which is so nice, and I am a huge fan of a forcing function, especially with creative things, which I think maybe before your book, I would not have thought of as belonging together so much. But to me, nothing kind of forces a start quite like a deadline. And then if there is, but, but that's not the finish as you talk about. So, you know, setting an arbitrary deadline so that you get that first novel written and then seeing where it goes from there. I think that's so, so effective and something that is, is so scary for people who maybe have some perfectionist tendencies or some big hopes for themselves or, or why would I do it if it's not going to get published? Exactly. Those are the things that keep us from starting. Thinking too bit too big about the finish. So the deadline could be definitely do deadlines, but uh, for the first step or for the you know for each stage, not necessarily for a finished product that you don't really know is going to be that. If you if you don't have to, there's um, the other concept of. There's the question of how can I start with very little time? And so there's a there's a hacks and habits section in the book to give us ideas, but but one of them is the Kaizen method of the very smallest step. Yes. About what your idea and how you could take the very smallest step to feel like you've taken action a step that leads to something else. If that step also includes an appointment with yourself to take the next step, then you are on your way. Right, right. Becky, thank you so much. This has been a conversation with Becky Blades, speaker, writer, and especially today, author of Start More Than You Can Finish, just launched today, available wherever books are sold. Uh, Becky, is there anything else uh, that, that folks can do? I, I heard maybe reach out with their with their starts that that would mean a lot to you it'd be great to know that that message is getting out there is there anything else folks can do to to move forward support you in the book or get their own ideas rolling yeah i mean don't support me to support this artistic culture we (laughs) start share the book but the concepts the mindset it is not it is not necessarily going to be a popular mindset for everyone but if this resonates for you you need to have your people and your people need to, you know, resonate. So this book for me has found my people. And so I'm much happier. I wish you all amazing starts, uh, get your ideas out of you into the world. The world needs them. Thank you so much. That's all folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and, who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon!